All right, well now we continue our new sermon series where we take a look into the life of that psalm's human author. David wrote Psalm 32, and we're going to continue now to look into the life of David. Uh, please turn with me to Joshua chapter 11. I think that's where I'd like to start today. Have you be is in Joshua chapter 11. As we prepare to look at the story of David and Goliath, a very common theme, if not a common story for most of you, I'm sure. Look forward today to continuing this uh, sermon series as we get into, eventually, 1 Samuel 17. But how about I open with a word of prayer and then we'll uh, get into the word. Father, we thank you so much for this day that you've made. We want to rejoice and be glad in it. We want to honor you rightly. We want to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. So Lord, we submit ourselves to your word today. This is the authority that you've placed in our lives. It's your word you have spoken. Help us today to come under the authority uh, mindfully, to willingly lay our hearts bare before you and be transformed today. God, we ask together that though I'm a fallen man, uh, that you would anoint me to preach, that you would speak through me, that you would uh, help me to not get in the way, but that your word would be clear to your people. God, we thank you so much for every good and perfect gift you've given. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, uh, make no mistake about it, uh, David and Goliath, as a story from the Bible, is one of the most overused and misunderstood stories in the entire Bible. <laughs> it's up there with Good Samaritan. You hear the term Good Samaritan a lot, and this is one of my wife's pet peeves. So next time you see Melissa, you can use Good Samaritan just in a sentence, and she'll like, you know, want to correct you about that, because... <laughs> On the news, they'll be talking like, there was a good Samaritan who rescued a woman with a flat tire, and Melissa will say, oh, was he that woman's enemy? Because that's what the Good Samaritan parable was. But, uh, you know, anyway, David and Goliath is up there. In fact, just last Sunday, I was watching a little YouTube video that was talking about this famous chef who's known for making good burgers, who was opening his first burger restaurant, and uh, he was doing it in New York City where there are a lot of burger restaurants. And so, of course, they called it a real David and Goliath story. Making hamburgers. Okay. Overused, misunderstood, just thrown out there all the time. And when it comes to this passage of the Bible and Christians seeking to make application of it, there's a lot of bad application of this passage. This passage can be taught in some really strange ways. Uh, another thing I listened to this past week was uh, a short... It was like a snippet of a sermon of a famous preacher from some time ago. And he was talking about basically how David uh, is America or America is David. And we face our Goliaths with the, the drug problem in the country and uh, teens facing peer pressure and on and on it goes. And I thought, well, as bad as my sermon's going to be on Sunday, it won't be that bad. <laughs> I mean, it's just kind of silly what people have done to this passage. And so let's understand it today the right way. Let's understand it in its context. Let's understand it by God's grace the way he would have us to understand it, okay? Uh, and I want you to be in Joshua 11 with me because as we set the stage for the passage in 1 Samuel 17, we need to understand who Goliath is. Uh, we heard a lot about who David was last week, but let's also consider who Goliath was leading up to this battle. 
Uh, Simply put, Goliath was an enemy of Israel, and we'll see here in a moment that he was put forth from the Philistines, from their camp, to challenge and to taunt Israel. But he was a, a Philistine who opposed Israel, and he was from the city of Gath, Goliath of Gath. So you take out some of the letters in the middle of his name, and you have where he's from, Goliath from Gath. And he was one of the remaining war refugees from hundreds of years ago. Let's start down in verse 21 of Joshua 11. Remember, Joshua was leading Israel in conquest of the promised land, forcing out Israel's enemies that they would take, uh, they would take up residency in this land that God gave them. It says in verse 21 of Joshua 11 that Joshua came at that time and cut off the Anakim from the hill country, from Hebron, from Debir, and from Anab, and all the hill country of Judah, from all the hill country of Israel. Joshua utterly destroyed them with their cities. There were no Anakim left in the land of the sons of Israel, only in Gaza, in Gath, there's our city, and in Ashdod some remained. So Joshua took the whole land according to all that the Lord had spoken to Moses, And Joshua gave it for an inheritance to Israel according to their divisions by their tribes. Thus the land had rest from war. So there were these enemies of Israel then called the Anakim, and they were driven out except for three cities. And one of those cities is the city of Gath, the city where Goliath was from. Now these Anakim weren't just uh, your average group of people. It wasn't just your average ethnicity. These Anakim were giants giant people. In fact, it says in Scripture that they were the sons of the Nephilim. Now, the Nephilim are found in Genesis chapter 6 as these threatening large people. And somehow, here they are after the flood, still around, the sons of the Anakim, or the sons of the Nephilim, rather, called the Nephilim. So let's go to 1 Samuel 17 now with that in mind and read the description of Goliath. 1 Samuel 17, we'll start at verse 4. And consider now, with that context, this behemoth of a man, Goliath. 1 Samuel 17, starting at verse 4, down through 11. It says, Then a champion came out from the armies of the Philistines named Goliath from Gath, whose height was six cubits in a span. He had a bronze helmet on his head, and he was clothed with scale armor which weighed 5,000 shekels of bronze. He also had bronze greaves on his legs and a bronze javelin slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and the head of his spear weighed 600 shekels of iron. His shield carrier also walked before him. He stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel and said to them, Why do you come out to draw up in battle array? Am I not the Philistine and your servants of Saul, and you servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will become your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall become our servants and serve us. Again, the Philistine said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. (laughs) All right, so there you go. There's an introduction to Goliath. There are different ways of measuring out exactly how tall he was and how heavy his armor was, but it turns out he was somewhere in the neighborhood of nine foot six, 
Nine foot six, okay? Uh, when I was uh, in junior high or something, I went to a basketball camp at the University of Missouri where I grew up, and one of the guests one day was Manute Bowl. Manute Bowl was like the tallest guy to ever play in the NBA, but he was really skinny, super skinny. But one of the coolest things he did was he stood in front of the basketball rim and flat-footed grabbed the rim. Just, I'm never going to see that again, all right? That's just like a once-in-a-lifetime, whoa, it was an amazing thing. Goliath, his head was just six inches under the rim. That's how big Goliath was. Now, we actually find out later in Scripture, this is in 1 Chronicles 20, that Goliath had a brother, and his brother had six fingers and six toes on each hand and foot. Twelve and twelve. I don't know if that was just for him or if Goliath had that going on too, but it's just pretty amazing. This was a massive, weird-looking guy. And to get an idea of just how massive, as we continue thinking about the NBA here for a moment, one of the biggest NBA players you can ever imagine was Shaquille O'Neal. They called him the Diesel. Big, big guy. And I actually uh, was next to him once at a conference I went to in Atlanta. He walked by, and he's just a mass of a human being. Like, there's a gravitational pull around Shaquille O'Neal. Well, um, one year in the NBA, this was now probably about 20 years ago, there was a new phenom from China coming to play in the NBA who was bigger than Shaquille O'Neal, a guy named Yao Ming. Now look at this picture, real picture, not doctored, of Yao Ming next to Shaquille O'Neal. I assume... You don't need to be told which one Shaquille O'Neal is. But look at that. Goliath was about two feet taller than Yao Ming. So now, put all that in perspective. That's who we're dealing with here in this story. Goliath of Gath. The weight of his armor, again, there are different ways of measuring this, but the weight of his armor was somewhere in the neighborhood of 150 pounds. Now, some of you this week have been lifting up bags of salt that are 50 pounds and thinking, 50 pounds is heavier than it used to be, maybe, right? (laughs) 50 pounds is heavy, especially if there aren't handles. It's like, what do I do with this thing? 150 pounds of armor. His spear, it says, of his, uh, the spearhead, was about 20 pounds, just boop, can throw it, can do whatever he wants to do because he's a massive human being. It's very hard to imagine. Well, this passage too that I just read tells us that he was a champion, a victor. He was the top dog in the the armies of the Philistines that they all followed and that they all had confidence in. And he, of course, was very, very prideful. If you look down again through verses uh, 8 through 11 or 8 through 10, you see his sayings there in front of Israel that he's Here to defy Israel, he's here to win. He had a lot of confidence in himself. What they were setting up was, of course, a one-on-one battle, as we just read, where one man could come out and face this man, Goliath, and whoever lost would become the servants of the other army. The Philistines, if you read through 1 Samuel, the Philistines had suffered a few losses up to this point. And it's quite possible that they were thinking, we need to maybe not just rush into battle, but let's see if we can just lose one guy if we do lose any and and see if we can win over people that way. And so it seems like that was their plan. So he went forward and it says down in verse 16, if you just glance down there, he went forward and mocked Israel morning and evening for 40 days. This went on for over a month where he would come out and taunt them. Dale Ralph Davis in his commentary says, we must listen to three verses of his hairy-chested braggadocio as Goliath bellows for a challenger to engage him in a single combat. No one has any trouble hearing him. 
Saul and Israel are both impressed and depressed. (laughs) That is certainly the case. But let's take note of here what he was doing. He was not just coming up against God's people. He was coming up against God. This is what Goliath was doing. Do you remember whenever Jesus met Saul on the road to Damascus? And he says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? When you come up against God's people, you come up against God. There's a fundamental unity between the people of God and God himself. And so this is not so much David versus Goliath as we get into the story. It's really God versus Goliath. And if you have David versus Goliath in your mind, you have to transition away from that a bit, okay? Yes, David is involved. Yes, David is the instrument in God's hand. But as David himself teaches us in this passage, Goliath is coming up against David's God. That's the problem. Goliath didn't know who David was, but he knew who Israel was, and he was not a follower of the God of Israel. Well, as a refresher, who was David? So we talked about who Goliath was. Who was David? David was a Bethlehemite, the youngest and smallest of the sons of Jesse. We looked last week and saw how he was anointed, how the six brothers were there lined up, and, well, isn't there another one? Oh, yeah, the the little guy, if you want me to get him, you know, that sort of thing. And David, the little guy, the youngest brother, gets anointed as the next king of Israel. And David enters the scene here in chapter 17 as the spirit-filled man that God is going to use to lead his people. Let's go back just to chapter 16, 1 Samuel 16, and go to verse 13 with me. 1 Samuel 16, verse 13, it says, Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him, David, in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon David from that day forward. The Spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. He's a Spirit-filled man. Now let's pay real close attention to the contrast. God gives us a very simple thing to see here. It says in verse, at the end of verse 13, Samuel arose and went to Ramah. Now verse 14, look at this. Now the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and an evil spirit from the Lord terrorized him. So David, upon his anointing, became equipped to lead God's people because he had the Spirit of the Lord. He was filled with the Spirit from that day forward. And in that same time, the Spirit left the current king of Israel, Saul. And he, in fact, was terrorized by a spirit from the Lord. Now, there are different ways of interpreting that that I'm not planning on getting into today. Uh, there, there are different options. God could have uh, sent a demon to do this. It could be talking about a spirit of depression that God allowed to happen in Saul's life as he obviously became a very depressed and anxious man. There are different ways of considering that. But here's what's important for today. He did not have the Spirit of God. He did not have Yahweh's Spirit abiding with him anymore, but David did. And immediately following this anointing where David receives the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit leaves Saul, we have a conversation between David and Saul. A spirit-filled youngster comes in now to have a chat with a worldly king. So let's pick it up in verse 15, same chapter, 16, verse 15. It says, Saul's servants then said to him, behold now, an evil spirit from God is terrorizing you. Let our Lord now command your servants who are before you. Let them seek a man who is a skillful skillful player of the harp. And it shall come about when 
the evil spirit from God is on you, that he shall play the harp with his hand, and you will be well. So Saul said to his servants, Provide for me now a man who can play well and bring him to me. Then one of the young men said, Behold, I have seen a son of Jesse the Bethlehemite, who is a skillful musician, a mighty man of valor, a warrior, one prudent in speech, and a handsome man. And the Lord is with him. Verse 19, So Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, Send me your son David, who is with the flock. Jesse took a donkey and loaded with, loaded with bread and a jug of wine and a young goat and sent them to Saul by David his son. Then David came to Saul and attended him. And Saul loved him greatly, and he became his armor bearer. Saul sent to Jesse, saying, Let David now stand before me, for he has found favor in my sight. So it came about whenever the evil spirit from God came to Saul, David would take the harp and play it with his hand, and Saul would be refreshed and be well, and the evil spirit would depart from him. Wow. They now have a a relationship, but Saul is no longer being led by the Spirit of God. Yet his armor-bearer, David, is. David there, it said in that passage, was a skillful musician, a mighty man of valor, a warrior, well-spoken, handsome. A mighty man of valor and a warrior. He was not yet old enough to be out in battle and doing the things that his brothers were doing here, facing the Philistines, but he was very brave, very courageous. We're going to learn some of the things that David did as a young man that we would not do today, that we would not advise our young men do today, you know, fighting bears and lions and those sorts of things. But David did. I kind of wonder, you know, since he was the youngest, you know how parents are with the oldest. You got to protect the oldest at all costs because you don't know about anything with parenting when you have the first one. But by the time you get to your seventh son, it's like, oh, where is he? I don't know. It's okay. He's fine. You know, just it's, he'll come back. He's like a stray cat. He knows when, where we put the milk out and everything. So I just wonder, you know, if David, while he was just out and about all the time, he just developed a, a spirit of courage, a very brave young man, wasn't afraid of much. And he was also a faithful servant. Did you see that when Saul called for David through Jesse, Jesse gave him some supplies. Here's some bread. Here's a jug of wine. Here's a young goat. And if you go over again to chapter 17 and drop down to verse 17, this was not something that was new for David, apparently. He did it often. He did it regularly. Chapter 17, verse 17. It says, Jesse said to David, his son, take now for your brothers an ephah of this roasted grain and these 10 loaves and run to the camp to your brothers. Bring also these 10 cuts of cheese to the commander of their thousand and look into the welfare of your brothers and bring back news of them. For Saul and they and all the men of Israel are in the valley of Elah fighting with the Philistines. He was an armor bearer. He was a shepherd. He was a supply runner. He was a servant. All of those roles are servant roles. He wasn't someone that people would look at and say, he's fit to be king. Even though he was brave, he was a skillful musician, he was handsome in appearance, he was a servant, and he was a faithful servant from all we can surmise in Scripture. Well, as we go back now to the beginning or the first half of chapter 17, where Goliath is there taunting the armies of Israel, Israel analyzed the situation with very worldly thinking. They were scared. They were nervous. And then David comes on the scene and compares Goliath to Israel's God. Israel's men were very comfortable in their hiding and in their speculating. As you read down through this passage, God's enemy was 
hurling insults, and they were just hiding. They were sitting back and speculating. Because that's what a lack of faith does, don't you know? When you don't believe that God is going to do what He said He's going to do, you're going to hide. You're going to hide. You're going to speculate. But what does faith do? Faith leads to open, bold decisiveness. And that's quite the contrast that God sets up for us here in this passage. Of course, their uh, hiding from giants wasn't anything new. You can jot down Numbers chapter 13, a very important passage in Israel's history. Numbers chapter 13, that's when the 12 spies went out to spy on Canaan, and 10 were bad and 2 were good. Anybody know the song? 10 were bad, 2 were good. What did they see when they got to Canaan? Well, 10 were bad and 2 were good. I don't know how it goes from there, but the song goes, they saw giants. They saw the sons of Anak. They saw the Anakim. And they said, well, we're like grasshoppers. We can't defeat them. We can't drive these enemies out. And because of their lack of faith, that generation wandered in the wilderness for 40 years, save Joshua and Caleb. But it's not the first time that the sons of Anak have scared Israel. And here, another generation remains afraid of these giants. You see, true faithfulness to God will lead you to some really uncomfortable battles, won't it? This is very uncomfortable for all of Israel. He's a really, 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 really big guy. Who could go face him one-on-one? Well, faithfulness, true believing, leads you to these uncomfortable battles that seem unwinnable. And believing and doing what God commands is very awesome and very, very fearful. Well, David shows up with faith. Verse 20, David shows up bringing the supplies and bringing his faith. Verses 20 to 27, it says, David arose early in the morning and left the flock with a keeper and took the supplies and went as Jesse had commanded him. And he came to the circle of the camp while the army was going out in battle array, shouting the war cry. Israel and the Philistines drew up in battle array, army against army. Then David left his baggage in the care of the baggage keeper and ran to the battle line and entered in order to greet his brothers." As he was talking with them, behold, the champion, the Philistine from Gath named Goliath, was coming up from the army of the Philistines, and he spoke these same words, and David heard them. Verse 24, when all the men of Israel saw the man, they fled from him and were greatly afraid. The men of Israel said, have you seen this man who is coming up? Surely he is coming up to defy Israel, and it will be that the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches and will give him his daughter and Make his father's house free in Israel. Then David spoke to the men who were standing by him, saying, What will be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away this reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should taunt the armies of the living God? The people answered him in accord with this word, saying, Thus it will be done for the man who kills him. This is the first time in the Bible we get a record of David speaking. The first quote from David, and he basically says, who's this dude? Why are we all bugged about this? What's the problem here? Who who is he to come up against God? You see, immediately David is comparing him to God. David's not comparing him to himself. David isn't saying here from the beginning, oh, that's easy. I took out a guy bigger than that a few weeks ago. You know, he's not having that kind of conversation. He's looking at the enemy of God and saying, my God will defeat his enemy. That's how simple as it was for David as he was looking through the eyes of faith. And I do think we can take something away here. This is really just like a side application. But there is value in a fresh set of eyes looking at a situation when that heart is coupled by faith. 
when someone comes along and has faith and you've been in a battle for a while and you've been struggling and you've perhaps slipped into fear of man thinking and worldly thinking, to have someone with faith come along and just snap you back into it. Really, really helpful. Well, they didn't listen to David. They should have listened to him. He was the child with childlike faith. But his oldest brother rebuked him. Let's look at verse 28. I'm going to pronounce his name Eliab. It says, Now Eliab, his oldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men. And Eliab's anger burned against David. And he said, Why have you come down? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your insolence and the wickedness of your heart, for you have come down in order to see the battle. You see, uh, walking by sight gets grumpy with walking by faith a lot of times. <laughs> when someone who's walking by sight encounters someone who has faith, there's usually some grumpiness that ensues. In his commentary, Chuck Swindoll said this of this interaction, How true is it that as soon as you start stepping out in faith, somebody will want to put you down, often another Christian or someone in your own family? Perhaps Eliab still battled the giant of jealousy that invaded his heart when Samuel anointed David instead of him. <laughs> Good observation. He's asking the questions, why are you here? Don't you have better things to do? I know that you're just wicked, selfish. These common retorts that people of faith can hear from time to time from people who lack faith. David had just asked the question, and that's basically his response. What have I done? I just asked a question, and it was a very necessary question. This question had to be asked. This is what the eyes of faith were seeing. Who is this guy? We represent God, the creator of this guy. What's he going to do? And Eliab's doubt did not deter David's faith. He pressed on. He was very persistent in reminding the Israelites of the power of their God, including their leader, the king. Let's drop down to verse 31 and look at a vital conversation that really sets the course for the relationship between David and Saul. It says, verse 31, when the words which David spoke were heard, they told them to Saul, and he sent for him. David said to Saul, let no man's heart fail on account of him. Your servant will go down and fight with this Philistine. Then Saul said to David, You are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you are but a youth, while he has been a warrior from his youth. But David said to Saul, Your servant was tending his father's sheep. When a lion or bear came and took a lamb from the flock, I went out after him and attacked him and rescued it from his mouth. And when he rose up against me, I seized him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear." And this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them, since he has taunted the armies of the living God. Well, that's a very, very good response, isn't it? That's a very good, faithful, believing response. Remember who David is and who Saul is. David is spirit-filled. Saul is spirit-emptied. David is looking at the situation through eyes of faith, believing that God will defeat his enemies. Saul's looking at the situation with worldly thinking. He's got his calculator out and he's figuring out, you know, how this could all work. And it could never work that way. They're coming at this from two very different perspectives. And so what is David doing? He's reminding the king of the power of God. 
the one leading Israel who should know about the power of God, the one who should be stirring up the people by reminding them of the power of God. Instead, you have the little shepherd boy, the Bethlehemite, the seventh son of Jesse, coming in and reminding the king of the power of God. Let's not forget 1 Samuel 16, 7, that graphic that we have up as the announcements roll. The Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I've rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Saul was looking on the outward appearance. The army of Israel, Eliab, David's older brother, was looking on the outward appearance of the whole situation. But the Lord looks on the heart. And people of faith don't get tied up in the outward appearance. You have to believe, too, that David felt at this point some measure of invincibility. He was just anointed some time ago, not that long in his past. He was anointed by God. He was filled with the Spirit. He knew that he wasn't going to die until God was ready for him to die. The basis of David's boldness was his confidence in God, not confidence in himself. And that comes out in that very next verse, verse 37. David said, again speaking to the king, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear, he will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, go and may the Lord be with you. David was very confident, wasn't he? You don't pick up a trace of doubt. He was not a double-minded man when it came to this issue. He fully believed. He said in verse 36 that their God is the living God. We're talking about the armies of the living God here going against Goliath, going against the Philistines. And the living God helps all those who call on him in the truth. And when the living God has brought you into his family, when the living God has made you a son or daughter of his own, and he's given you commands, and he's given you a commission, and he's placed you in this life with influence, he will see you through it. He's not going to abandon you. You belong to him. He made you his. He's not going to forsake you. That, that statement that was made to Joshua, he will never leave you nor forsake you. It gets reapplied to Christians in the book of Hebrews. God will never leave us. He will never forsake us. He is the living God. And so when you have this concept in front of you of obeying God, of, of following him by faith, your confidence should never be in yourself, but in the God who called you. Because if you're putting your confidence in yourself, you have reason to worry. You have reason to hesitate. But if you are totally viewing this life as being fueled by faith in the living God who gives life to your mortal body, He will see you through it. He is good to do it. He is faithful to do it. You see, through this story, we've seen Goliath. We've seen brother Eliab. We've seen Saul all point out reasons why one of God's people shouldn't obey Him. Why one of God's people shouldn't have faith. Well, faith focuses on what we should do. And David was focused on obeying God, on following God, on trusting in God's power. He remembered the faithfulness of his God, talking about lions and bears. No tigers, just lions and bears. He was thinking back to these times he's, he's had these dangerous situations. And it was the living God who delivered him. And he recounts, he remembers the faithfulness of God, and that fueled his faith. 
So again, another side application point here could be, do you remember the faithfulness of God in your life? Whatever lions and bears you've wrestled in the last few years, maybe in the last few days, do you remember how faithful God has been? Do you write it down? Do you remind yourself of what He has done? Does that fuel the decisions you'll make tomorrow? I think it's a good idea maybe to start jotting some of that down. Maybe you could, as one commentator said, invest in a journal. Consider God's commands and how faithful he has been. Well, at this point, there's really nothing left to do but for David to kill Goliath, right? God would do it as David stepped forward in faith. This was, of course, bound to happen. But before we get to the actual killing, which, by the way, the, the killing, David killing Goliath is just really quick in this story. There's a lot of buildup to it, and I think that's for a reason. But let's consider how this is all about God displaying his power and his glory. It's all about God displaying his strength through very insufficient people like you and me and like David. Remember how the Lord Jesus said to the Apostle Paul that his power is perfected in weakness. Well, here's an Old Testament example of that. God's power is perfected in weakness. Before we go to the battle scene, consider how outwardly Saul seemed to be one of God's best creatures. King Saul did. I mean, look around. Who could be king? He looked like a king. He looked like the guy who should be the king. But God doesn't look on the outward. He looks on the heart. Even though he looked like he was hardly insufficient, he was very much insufficient. He certainly was insufficient. Whereas David, of course, didn't seem like he should be king at all, and yet he was God's choice. God doesn't choose those who perform best. God doesn't choose those who appear best. God chooses in such a way to totally upend our expectations. God likes to surprise us. God likes to flip the narrative. God likes to take, you know, what Hollywood comes up with or whatever and just do the opposite because he wants his power to be glorified through weak vessels. Abram is a great example. Abraham was chosen. Why? He had faith, but he was just a pagan from the land of Ur. God's choice. What about Moses? Stammering, stuttering Moses. He didn't look like someone who should go out and talk for everybody. But God chose him. The nation of Israel itself, it says in Deuteronomy 7, God didn't choose you because you were so big. In fact, you're the littlest of all the peoples. But God has chosen you to display his glory through you. And consider your calling, church. Not many of you, wise, etc., etc. But God is showing His power through us. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 27 to 29. It says, God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. And the base things of the world and the despised, God has chosen the things that are not so that He may nullify the things that are so that no man may boast before God. It's all his doing. He gets all the credit. He gets all the glory. And that applies to the life of David. David was chosen so that God's glory would shine through a very insufficient vessel. And God really delights in doing that. In fact, later on in David's life, he would write Psalm 20, verse 7, one of my favorite verses in the Bible. Some boast in chariots and some in horses, but we will boast in the name of the Lord our God. We don't collect worldly strength 
we don't build up all this creaturely effort and say, that's why we're the best. That's why we're going to succeed. Instead, we look to the living God and we trust in His power. We trust in His might. We trust in what He has said. And again, it goes back to that conversation that Jesus had with Paul. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7, Paul pleaded with the Lord to take the thorn away. He says at the end of the verse, a messenger of Satan was sent to torment him, to keep him from exalting himself. Verse 8, Paul continues, concerning this, I implored the Lord three times that it might leave me. And he has said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. And here, David is kind of like a precursor to that, isn't he? A foreshadowing of that. He wasn't looking to his own strength. He was looking to the power of the living God. And you should too. You feel very insufficient? Well, that makes you qualified to serve God. You feel that you just don't have what you need to get the job done, whatever the job is? Call on God. He doesn't lack any resources. You feel like it's really difficult to take that step of faith and obedience to Jesus Christ? Call on Jesus Christ because His power is perfected in your weakness. Your weakness makes you eligible for service. Recognizing that you're insufficient qualifies you to join God in His program. Well, David called his shot here in 1 Samuel 17, and it happened just as he said. Verse 41, we'll read 41 to 47. It says, Then the Philistine came on and approached David with the shield-bearer in front of him. When the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth and ruddy with a handsome appearance. The Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his lowercase g gods. Verse 44. The Philistine also said to David, Come to me and I will give your flesh to the birds of the sky and the beasts of the field. Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword, a spear, and a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have taunted. This day the Lord will deliver you up into my hands, and I will strike you down and remove your head from you. And I will give the dead bodies of the army of the Philistines this day to the birds of the sky and the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord does not deliver by sword or by spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and He will give you into our hands." Another great little sermon from David. Very, very good looking at this through the eyes of faith. David highlighted his weakness here that God was the one gaining the victory. Look again at verse 45. He says that I come in God's name and it is God whom you have taunted. See David's perspective there? This is Goliath versus God. This is not Goliath versus David. He knew that God would have the victory. He knew that God would vindicate his holy name. So let's keep reading. Drop down to verse 48. Then it happened when the Philistine rose and came and drew near to meet David, that David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand into his bag and took from it a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on his forehead. And the stone sank into his forehead 
so that he fell on his face to the ground. Verse 50. Thus David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone, and he struck the Philistine and killed him. But there was no sword in David's hand. Then David ran and stood over the Philistine and took his sword and drew it out of his sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. (laughs) Just as he said, exactly how it happened. Amazing, amazing thing. Well, David came to him with a simple sling and a stone. But you shouldn't think of this as like some sort of Dollar Tree slingshot thing that you can buy or something like that, okay? So it was a a leather strap that was wide in the middle and kind of tapered off toward the ends. And you put a stone in there and you whirl it around your head and you let go of one of the strings at a certain point and boop, off the stone goes. And if you have good aim, you have good success. It would be very, very difficult to use one of these, but perhaps this was the closest thing to a gun that they would have at that time. Much harder to aim than a gun, but it would probably come off of that sling at 100 miles an hour or more. And so he slinged one of these stones and it hit Goliath right in his forehead. He already kind of looked like a cyclops and now he had a hole there just to finish him off. And it only took one. It only took one stone. He had extras. He had leftovers. Isn't that amazing? Because God was vindicating his holy name. God was glorifying his power. And little David picks up the sword to finish Goliath off just as he said, cutting off his head. So where where are the young boys? We only have three in here today, I think, or just a few. Here's a cool spot in the Bible, huh? David cut off Goliath's head. Yeah, video games do it, so you you might as well look where the Bible does it too. And he proves that God has the victory. So the Philistines, they fled. The Israelites, so to speak, put David on their shoulders And it was an amazing scene. Let's drop down to verse 54 and read through the end of the chapter. It says, David took the Philistine's head and brought it to Jerusalem, but he put his weapons in his tent. Those are, oh man, what trophies. Verse 55, now when Saul saw David going out against the Philistine, he said to Abner, the commander of the army, Abner, whose son is this young man? And Abner said, by your life, O king, I do not know. The king said, You inquire whose son this youth is. So when David returned from killing the Philistine, Abner took him and brought him before Saul with the Philistine's head in his hand. Saul said to him, Whose son are you, young man? And David answered, I am the son of your servant, Jesse, the Bethlehemite. So on the one hand, when you first read through that, it's almost like that scene in Forrest Gump whenever he runs super fast and the uh, head coach from Alabama sees him just run across the field and is like, who on earth is that, right? It was kind of that, uh, that sort of moment. But what's interesting is you've read this passage here this morning. Saul has interacted with David. Saul sent to David's father to get David there to be his armor bearer back in chapter 16. So what on earth is going on? Like, how does Saul not know who David is? Well, let's consider a few things, uh, at least a couple. One is that David, or uh, Saul rather, had many servants around all the time. Lots of people all the time that he was in charge of, that he commanded to do certain things. And if at one point in the history there, even if it was just a matter of months ago, if he called to some guy, some shepherd in Bethlehem named Jesse, and asked to keep one of his sons around for a bit, that would be easily forgotten because of all that Saul was up to. But the other thing is time. There was likely a significant amount of time that had passed from then to now, even if it was 
In our vernacular, we would say just a couple of years. Well, a lot of things happen in a couple of years. A lot of things happen over the course of time. And he wasn't inquiring who David was, but he was inquiring who his father was. And so he had forgotten, apparently, that he was the son of Jesse and needed to be reminded of David's lineage. That's what Saul was going for with this question. Saul knew who he was, but didn't remember whose son he was. And little did Saul know what all would be coming after this moment. He had this interaction with David before David went out to Goliath, and little did he know what was going to come next in the events of the rest of their lives. Well, as we consider some final application here and trying to avoid the, the bad application that exists out there, let's, uh, let's think of it this way. What has God called you to do? What has God called you to do? Now, we can make this really simple as Christians. In fact, I heard a fellow pastor earlier this week make it this simple. The Great Commission and the Great Commandment. We are to go out and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing and teaching them, and to love the Lord our God with all our heart, all our soul, all our mind. It could be that simple. Now, there are a lot of sub-goals under those two massive goals, aren't there? There are a lot of things that make up fulfilling those commissions, those commands. But as you consider in your life what God has called you to do based on His Word, would you commit to doing it by faith? And there are several things that face us each week that are challenging. There are several things that come up in our lives that seem absolutely daunting, that seem, from a worldly perspective, can I say the word impossible? It's a word I'm having to teach my kids to stop using. Impossible, impossible, impossible. Hey, can you fold that blanket? Oh, it's impossible. Stop it. <laughs> but realize from God's perspective, when we talk about these things that seem impossible to us, that He has called us to do, it sounds like that, doesn't it? You have a God who's bigger than Goliath. You have the living God on your side. You have the Lord Jesus Christ that has promised that His power will be perfected in your weakness, that His grace is sufficient for you. You can say with the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 3, who is sufficient for these things? But the answer is obvious. Your God is. And just as the Holy Spirit anointed David and abided with David, so the Holy Spirit is with you too, Christian. The Holy Spirit is with your spirit. The Holy Spirit is empowering you, driving you, leading you. So think about what you're called to do, what God has called you to. The Great Commission, having that gospel conversation with your neighbor, impossible, not with the living God. Be more like faithful David and less like his older brother, right? Have those conversations. There's a fellow Christian in your life that you need to confront about something. Do it in faith. Step forward in faith. There's something you need to own up to in sober honesty. You have to confess. Walk forward in faith. God has called you to this, to confess your sins to one another. Perhaps one of you, some of you, God is calling to be sent out to go represent Him in a faraway place. The living God has called you to His army. Would you step out in faith? Who is sufficient for these things? Not us in ourselves, but we are sufficient because of the power of God, giving life to our bodies, driving us, pushing us forward to follow Him in faith. Let's pray.
Father, we thank you again for this day that you've made and for all the ways that you take care of us, all the ways that you empower us and encourage us. And we ask that as we look at the week ahead of the different things that are going to fill our schedule this week, some of the really difficult things we may have to do, Lord, we ask that you would give us the perspective of faith, that you would open the eyes of our hearts, that the eyes of our hearts would be enlightened, that we would not see things the way that man sees, that we would not look on the outside and be utterly consumed with the odds that we calculate on our own, but that we would, by faith, follow you in obedience to your commands and trust that you will give us all the grace we need for each moment. Lord, we love you so much and we thank you for this story of you versus Goliath and how you proved yourself to be the living God. Help us to continually have that view day by day. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.